Oh, church, there is so much to praise God about, isn't there? Oh, he is such a good God. I'm a little overwhelmed and overcome this morning just singing those songs, just amazed by our God, amazed at how good he is. I want to give him a big praise. Uh, it was a big week for the Rosties. Uh, guys, we had a, a new addition to our little family, and I'm going to try to throw up a picture for you so you can see. Uh, <laughs> she looks a lot like her mom. That's why she's beautiful. She didn't get, she didn't get a lot from her dad. So that's uh, baby Jubilee Joy. She joined us on 523. And so guys, thank you for your prayers. Um, for those of you who are new, my name is Shane. I'm a relatively new pastor here. Um, and uh, I'm excited to share the word of God with you this morning. Um, I just want to maybe just pray a, a real quick. You can't pray too much, right? Let's pray just a real quick. Lord Jesus, we just thank you. God, I thank you. I thank you for new life in Christ. God, I thank you for baptism. God, an expression of what you have done by bringing us into a spiritual and eternal life. And God, today we just, we want to praise you and thank you and dwell in your word and be challenged by it. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would go to work on us and in our hearts this morning in Jesus' name. Well, brothers and sisters, I wanna start uh, this morning with uh, this picture. We've been working through the book of Mark. And in the book of Mark, we've known that the whole pinnacle of the book of Mark is to ask that question that we are going to explore today. Who do you say that I am? This was Jesus's question to the disciples. Who do you say that I am? We're going to talk about that. But everything that happened in the book of Mark up until this point was to show us who Jesus is. And so we've seen that Jesus is our satisfaction. He is our advocate. He is someone who can heal. He is someone who can deliver. He is amazing. And now today, the clamor for us, the, the fever pitch of the book of Mark, if you will, is this, that he would be the Lord of our life that he would be the Lord of our life, that he would become the, the person in charge and directing our life. We call this lordship. Lordship, we get this out of Romans 10, 9 that says, when you become a Christian, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and it says, you will be saved, yes, amen. I wanna give you a parable this morning, a parable of sorts. A man finds himself in the middle of an ocean. And in the middle of that ocean, he is drowning. And he's calling for help and he's pleading for help. And finally, a ship sees him and comes and, and throws him a life preserver with a rope attached to it to pull him in. His choice is there. The captain presents him with a choice. Uh, as you pan out, you begin to see that he's not the only person drowning in this ocean that there's thousands, that there's hundreds of thousands of hands reaching for help and drowning in the midst of the sea. And so the captain says, here are your options. I can throw you this life preserver and you can stay here and you can survive hanging on to this life preserver or you can jump on board, join my crew and begin the rescue mission of pulling all of these people out of the depths of this drowning ocean. But the man looked at the captain and said, you know, I would rather just cling to this life preserver and go and rescue the others. For me, this next passage, for me thinking about Christianity today, there's many people who would just preserve, would just, uh, you guys are going to have to forgive me. I'm functioning on a little bit of sleep. So sometimes I might mix my words up, okay? 
Some of us would prefer just to be saved, but we were saved to a life in Christ, weren't we? And he calls us as the captain of the rescue ship. He calls us to join him and become a part of his crew to go on this rescue mission of life, to save those around us who are also drowning in what? Sin and death. And so this juncture in the book of Mark is here to force us to ask the question, who is Jesus? And he's going to leave us with three important questions today. Three important questions today. Hopefully my slides catch up. Three important questions today. But let's read the passage, Mark 8, 27 through 33. Um, as, let me set the stage really quick because I've actually been here to this place where this happened. Um, Jesus is at a place called Caesarea of Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi is kind of sandwiched in this kind of small valley with a, with a creek kind of going out, and there's a cliff behind it. Oh, there it is. Okay, good. It came up. This is called, uh, so that's the Temple of Pan. And so Jesus, the, the backdrop for this conversation is this cave behind you. This is the place that it happened. This conversation happened. It's at Caesarea Philippi. And that cave, local lore would have called that a hell gate or a hell mouth. Okay, and so this conversation is happening in, in this really interesting place. And Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? Another backdrop to this conversation is Caesarea of Philippi was considered kind of like the Las Vegas of the area the sin city of the area, if you will. If you see, there's a point that the, the ruins right next to this hell gate is a, a place called Temple of Pan. Okay, so there was a temple in the city. They would do human sacrifices. So they would literally throw people in this cave and they would throw them into the water and uh, that's how they would sacrifice to this God Pan. So this was a messed up place. Not only that, but if you know anything about Pan, the, the lore, the mythology behind Pan, he was half half animal, half person, right? So that landed to things, nasty things in the community like bestiality. It was, it was a very nasty community as the backdrop to this conversation with the disciples. This becomes important later, okay? So hang on to that. So let's have this conversation. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea of Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And who would answer? <laughs> Peter. Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Everybody say, way to go, Peter. Okay. And then Jesus turned around, and he says, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. In verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Okay, Peter, maybe not so good on this point, right? Rebuking Jesus. Let's see how this goes for Peter. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, you know you've, you've probably stepped over a line when Jesus is turning around to you and saying, get behind me, Satan, right? We can agree on that. For you're not, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And so let's 
Let's begin to discuss here. There's three questions that this passage takes us through. It's going to be a journey for us to see what does it mean to believe that Jesus is our Lord, okay? What does it mean that that Jesus would be our Lord? He starts with, who do people say that I am? And this is, I think, is an important conversation for us because we live in a world today that has a lot to say about who Jesus is, don't we? There's a lot of opinions. There's a lot of different versions of Jesus that have been in cinemas and talked about. And it's amazing to me that he's still a central piece to so much of our media, but it's talked about in so many different ways. We have to ask the question, what is true? And so Jesus turns to the disciples and he asks, who do people say that I am? Is it important for us today to consider what are people saying about Jesus? Yeah, I think it is. I think it is. Listen to what people think about Jesus. Not because it's true or it sways who he is, but teaches us where to begin the conversation. Because we know scripture was given to us according to, in in Timothy tells us, for correction and reproof. It's important to know what do people believe about Jesus so that we can start the conversation about who he is really, isn't it? And there's a lot of deep misconceptions about who Jesus is. And we need to be people who use scripture for what it was intended, to know God. Many people, we like to use the Bible as a manual of how-tos. We like to call it the manual of life. How do we live life? But did you know it's so much more than just a manual of how to live life? What is it a manual to do? It's more of a love letter for us to get to know God. So do you read the Bible as a means to get to know God? or how to do better. I want to encourage you, read scripture as a means to get to know God, and everything else will be added to you. See, the purpose of scripture is to know God. It's not just to be good people or to do better, isn't it? So who do people say that I am? When I have evangelistic conversations today, what I find is about 50% of my conversations with people is correcting wrong views of who Jesus is. You guys seeing this? Because we have lots of different denominations. We have lots of different people who would profess uh, being Christian who aren't really Christian. It's so interesting to me. Every time I preach a message, God gives me this experience during the week. And so who would you know would knock on my door this week as uh, the Mormon missionaries in the area came and they knocked on my door and I sat down and I had a good conversation with them. And they were a little overwhelmed after about an hour and a half, two hours of talking with Pastor Shane. Um, But we began to have this conversation, and we began to unpack who Jesus is, and and you could just see that there were lots of misconceptions that they they really wanted it to be Jesus plus something else. They wanted Jesus is not just enough for our salvation, uh, that that just following Jesus isn't enough, that you got to have more, you've got to have works. And, And I began to unpack this by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, that it's Jesus who does the saving And we began to unpack these things, but it amazes me, brothers and sisters, man, we've got people who are extremely zealous about telling us lies about who Jesus is. Isn't it funny that the culture is telling Christians to shut up about him? When everybody else has something to say about him, the ones who actually have the direct connection to God are told to be quiet. Brothers and sisters, we can't cave to that. So who... Uh, do people say that I am? As he turns to the disciples and they begin to answer that, they say, well, some are saying that you're John the Baptist, which is kind of weird because at certain points they were in the same room 
It was like these were not very, uh, they were not up on the news. Others were saying Elijah. Now we know that the, there was this prophecy about Elijah. We know that John, John the Baptist fulfilled the prophecy that he would be the one who came to prepare the way for the coming Messiah, Jesus. We know that John, that was John the Baptist, but he was said the part of the prophecy that he would be the, another Elijah, okay? And so you can start to see they've heard about these prophets and then uh, 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 they say, who do people say that I am? Another prophet? Are you one of the other prophets? And this is important, the language that he uses. Are you just one of the other prophets? One of the other prophets. So who do people say that I am? See, we live in a world where you've got, there's the Catholic version of Jesus. Have you seen the stained glass windows, right? The images, uh, we've got Mormons have their version of Jesus. Did you know even Islam has a version of Jesus? Um, there's a new religion kind of popping up and becoming uh, really well-known in the U.S. called the Baha'i. I got to visit a Baha'i church, and they believe uh, that all of the prophets are from God. And so they take all the religions and clam them, clam them together. Um, by the way, the only ones they don't believe are true are the Mormons. Just thought that was interesting. Um, that was discussing uh, that with a Baha'i person. In, uh, Americans even have their own version of Jesus, don't we? Do you guys agree with that? American Jesus looks a little bit like Ronald Reagan. Like, you know, Republicans have their version of Jesus. Did you know Democrats have their version of Jesus? It's like every different political genre has their version of who they want Jesus to be. Denominations all like to take and place a specific emphasis on who they want Jesus to be. We all have our own versions of Jesus. But make no mistake, brothers and sisters, there is only one Jesus and he's not who you and I want him to be. He is who he is. And so don't fall into the hearsay of what people are saying and clamoring about. We want to know who Jesus truly is, not as what the rumor of who Jesus is. We have Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, talks about the new covenant, the new covenant. Um, we were talking about this in Sunday school this morning with the guys. It says this in uh, verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. So here's the new covenant. This is amazing. Brothers and sisters, this is for us. This is the new covenant that we live under. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, this is important, and each his brother, saying, know the Lord. For here's the beauty of the new covenant. Brothers and sisters, this is amazing. For they shall all know me from the least of them. Anybody feeling like a least of them? To the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Brothers and sisters, we have direct, according to the covenant, when you place your faith in Jesus, you receive the Holy Spirit into your life. It's like he indwells you and he gives you a direct pathway or connection to God himself. And that's affirmed through the scriptures. And so the Holy Spirit speaks in you through the scriptures. We have an avenue to the, the truth about God. See, this is the miracle of the church. 
This is the miracle of the church, is that we all witness the one true God and report back to each other and discover that he is one. He is the same God yesterday and tomorrow. He is and cannot be changed by public opinion. Can I get an amen to that? He cannot be swayed by, by changes or shifts in culture. Can I get an amen for that one? Or in time. He is the same God. And so we come as the church, we come together and we have John 4, 24 tells us that God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in what? Truth. So there are multiple corrupt versions of Jesus and that's not surprising. Did you know, and we've talked about this before, that one of Satan's biggest tactics in our world today is to take a partial truth and to do what with it? To take a truth and twist it, just to twist it. It's Jesus' truth. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's what Jesus said. But Satan takes that, and he begins to do what with it? He begins to twist it, and he sells it to the culture. And this is where we get something like back in Mark 7, 7, Jesus says, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of man. The commands of men, Mark 7, 7. So there's this point where men seem to deem themselves as, as professionals on who God is. Have you ever met these folks? And I'll tell you, I had a conversation with those two Mormon elders, and they really viewed themselves as professionals on who God was and who God is. And they were deeply convinced that they had an information that I didn't. Brothers and sisters, we have connection to God through Jesus Christ. So we need to be on a journey deconstructing. Have you ever heard that term? That can be a good thing. Here's the good application of deconstructing. We need to be deconstructing our faulty images of Jesus. I always, I like this quote. Uh, I heard it. it said, God made man in his image, and man has been trying to return the favor ever since. If you're looking for that quote, that's from Frank Wedekinds. So if Jesus isn't just anyone we want him to be, why ask the next question? It's not to say that God is, is whoever each of us individually claims him to be. See, there is a correct answer. And so Jesus asks the question, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Here's what he's not asking. You ever been in a small group where you're having a conversation about a passage and you hear somebody ask, what does that mean to you? That can be kind of dangerous language, brothers and sisters. You know why? Because truth is not relative. Truth is truth. It's unchanging. And so we have this kind of culture of relativism that starts to wrap around and we begin to talk about how does, how does, who do, who, what's our version of Jesus? Christians, we have to be really careful that when we explain Jesus, we're grounded in the truth of who God is because we can really accidentally misrepresent who Jesus is. That's really an important thing. And so, G, so Peter here, he has a attaboy moment where G, Peter, or sorry, Jesus asks him, who do you say that I am? And Jesus, or sorry, Peter answers with what? You are the Christ, the Christ. This is really important. The, the literal translation of that word would be Messiah. And the word Messiah in the Greek would have been known as anointed one. Did you catch it? Anointed one, singular. There's a really important aspect to the fact that Peter answers with anointed one. Why is that important? Well, if you look in the Old Testament, it's never used in the singular. When he's referring to the prophets, you remember who people say that I am? Well, other prophets. Peter answers, he says, no, 
This title, Messiah, is unique to Jesus alone in history. He's not like other prophets. He's not like other men. He is wholly unique in all of history, in all of existence. He is the anointed one, capital T-H-E, the anointed one. And we would miss that in our writing, but Peter, man, he, he didn't miss a beat that this title exclusively applies to Jesus. He is the anointed one of God. He's different. And so this brings us to this idea of the exclusivity of Christ. What does that mean, the inclusive exclusivity of Christ? Jesus, in a sense, is inclusive. Would you agree? Meaning that he invites all people to himself freely. He invites all of us to himself, but only through him. So he is also exclusive because he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, light. No one comes to the Father but through, through me. And so there's this exclusive nature to Jesus. It has to be the true Jesus, not some faulty construct, not some image, not some movie, not some show. It has to be Jesus himself. Jesus is unique in every sense of the word. No one is like him, and he is unlike any who came before him. This is what Peter is saying. And if you look in the, in the version of this story in Matthew, it kind of blows up. Like Jesus turns to Peter and says, you didn't come to this on your own. This is a clear revelation of God that Jesus is unique in history. Did you guys know the word holy? Say it with me, ready? Holy. When we sing the word holy, you're saying, unlike anything I know, separate, other than, I cannot connect you to anything else. When you say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, you're saying there's nothing like you, God. There's no one who comes close to you. You are unique in every sense of the, of the word. You are holy. And he is uniquely capable to make man right with God. When we talk about Jesus, there is no one under the sun who can make a man right with God other than Jesus. Christians, we have to be so abundantly clear on that. Some of you don't fall asleep on me. You're like, Shane, I've heard this before. We need to be a church that the resounding and clear understanding when we communicate Jesus is that he is the only way to rightness with God. Because sometimes if we gray those lines, if we make them kind of vague, our culture runs with it, doesn't it? And they think that Jesus is just one of another many options. He's just another one of many prophets. Peter is praised in Matthew for this discovery. Um, I think of the other prophets could only speak what they were told, but Jesus is different because uh, he is the very word of God himself. The prophets could not claim that. But then it's kind of interesting that Jesus then turns to the disciples and, and he says, tell no one. Why does he say that? What does he say? Turn around, he says, tell no one, verse 30. Well, here's the thought and here's the question. Was Peter saved yet? What do you think? Was Peter indwelt with the Holy Spirit yet? No, that would come at Pentecost. So Peter stood up and he proclaimed Jesus is the Christ, but he's not yet saved. Can people do that today? This next passage is the third question that I think we often miss in this passage. The third question is, who do your values say that I am? See, when, uh, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. 
And he said this plainly to the disciples. And Peter did what? Said, no, Lord, I don't like that. That can't be true. That's not what I want. I don't like that. And he literally rebukes Jesus, who he just said, you are the one, the anointed of God. Oh, many of us would say, oh, Peter, we would never do that. Like, But we do with our lives all the time, don't we? We do with all, all, all the time with our lives because we hold values and other things as more valuable than the anointed one of God. See, Peter could, could proclaim Messiah with his lips, but could not yet submit to the total lordship of Christ yet. Therefore, he wouldn't be able to give the full picture of Jesus without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Matthew 7 says, not everyone, this is church this passage needs to be preached in every church in the Western part of the world so much. It's one of the maybe most terrifying passages in scripture to a, a, somebody who professes Christ. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your and cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Those words should hit us like a ton of bricks and should cause us to take a, a double back and, and to really think through our life. Are we valuing Christ? Are we looking at things through the lens of the Lord? Or like Peter, are we looking at life and worried about the immediate things that tend to distract us to grab our attention, our worldly values? Here's a dangerous question for you and I to ask ourselves. What would people around me say? What would people around me say is most important to me? That's a dangerous question, church. If people around you in your sphere, maybe at your place of work, maybe it's at the grocery store, people around you, if they were, if they were to be asked, what would you say is most important to that person? What do you think they'd say? Because in essence, we've talked about this before, the, the church, we were created uh, to be worshipers of God, to worship God, glorify him forever and enjoy him, right? That is the chief end of man, to glorify and enjoy God forever. So a major part of why we exist is to worship. And I like to say it this way, worth-ship, worth-ship. See, worship literally means that you ascribe value or worth to something, that you ascribe value or worth to something. I wanna argue you, to you today that the church, the American church has a really cheap Jesus. And we portray a really cheap Jesus because we don't want to be inconvenienced, Lord. That's no lordship in our life. We to ascribe worth. How, how does something have value? I want to ask you that question. If something has value to it, how, how, where does that value come from? Well, a worth, if something is only worth what you're willing to pay to get it, correct? Something is only worth what you're willing to pay to get it. The man who discovered the treasure in the field, there's, Jesus tells this parable about this man who discovers the treasure in the field and he goes and what does he do? He sells everything that he owns to buy that field and does he do it with a long face? No, he sells everything and he goes, what a banging good deal because he understood that the value of the treasure in that field surpassed everything in his life. Christians, do we live with that kind of value of our Christ, the anointed one? 
Or do we say that in songs with our lips and then go and live as if the things of this earth are far more valuable than the Jesus who is the Lord of our life? Are we communicating a low value to Christ? I, uh, well, it was about a year ago, I was a youth pastor. (laughs) Some of you are like, well, that makes sense. And I used to do these things called parent-pastor conferences. And I would have these conferences with pastors or with parents, and I would ask them questions, what do your kids think is most important to you about them? What do your kids think is most important to you about them? And clearly, they were having a pastor conference, and so what do you think they'd say? Oh, Pastor Jesus, Jesus. Clearly, my kids think that Jesus is the most important part or the most important thing about them. But then I would ask a question, when's the last time you've asked your kiddos about how they're doing in relationship with you? You know what parents would ask me or would look at me and they'd say, I can't remember. I said, okay, well, when's the last time you asked them about their grades yesterday? When's the last time you asked them about their friends, about what they're into? When's the last time you asked them about how they're doing in relationship with Jesus? Shane, I can't remember. So effectively, we as, a, as parents, accidentally, we would say we're pointing them to Christ in all things, but at the same, same token, the things that we ask about have nothing to do with Jesus. We're much more worried or concerned about their performance, their behaving. Are you more worried about your kids behaving, or are you more worried about your kids in relationship with Jesus? We had a picture of that this morning where Corey comes up and he says, Talia's relationship is so much more important than anything else. As, as a dad, that is my highest, my highest pursuit is my kid's relationship with Jesus. I can get over bad grades. I can't get over them having a bad relationship with Jesus. And I will labor until I'm dead and with Jesus for them to know Jesus deeper. I, uh, how else do you find out what is important or of value to somebody? Well, I used to do this whiteboard outreach where I would put a whiteboard up on a college campus and I would say, what would you do if you had 24 hours to live? You ever ever been asked this question? You ever had that question? And uh, it was always amazing to me all the different questions or answers that you would receive and they were college guys. So one of the answers I always thought was funny, brace yourself, he just said, I would find a beautiful woman. It's like, okay. And then uh, underneath that, somebody said, avoid this guy and pointed... (laughs) But when we are to consider our values, when we ask that question, what would we do with the last 24 hours of our life if that's all we had left, you begin to find out what's most important to you. And Peter at this point was unable to relinquish his expectations and wants to the will of God. Sound familiar? Sounds like me. Sacrifice is our greatest act of worth-ship. We have this in Romans 12, 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, our bodies, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so here Paul is saying that worship is singing really easy, good songs on Sunday. Showing up to church on Sunday is is all the worship I need. No, our sacrifice, what it costs us to follow Christ, it tells the world he is worth every. He is worth everything to me. And that's why I think the world today, the, uh, I'm just going to say, you know, the U.S., I have the most experience in the U.S. 
I think the U.S. looks at the church and they say, you guys don't even act like you need Jesus. Why would we need him? You ever had that conversation? I've had that conversation. That's a big line in Riverton, brothers and sisters. I don't really need religion. I'm good to go. What would I need Jesus for? You know how many times I've heard that in the eight to 10 months I've been here? That is a real, so what it tells me is that Christians have communicated a really low view of Jesus, that he's just kind of a buddy who gives you what you want. And if you have everything you want, you don't need him. So singing may be better considered praise because it's only one small part of worth-ship. But what is a major part of our worth-ship? Well, what's the thing that labors over your heart the most, that you agonize over the most? If I use the term money, how many of you cringe a little bit? You think of money as having a high value. You think of time having a high value. You think of service where you serve that is of great value to you. Your interests. How much money has been spent on hobbies? A lot, right? Or how much uh, our, our time goes to our work? And, and so the question would be, if these are the things that communicate what's valuable and what's important, how are we sacrificing those things to communicate that God is more valuable than they. Does that make sense? So I talk about money, time, service, our interests, our places of work, our hobbies. Do you lay these at the feet of Jesus and ask him to bow at your feet and serve your interests? How many of you have prayed the prayer, God, just give me a lot of favor at work. I want you to serve my work life. God, I need more money. God, I need provision. I need more time. Anybody prayed the time one? God, I need, if you just give me more time, God. Or give me more joy in my interests. Here's what I'm not saying, brothers and sisters. I'm not saying stop playing Frisbee golf. But what I am saying is play Frisbee golf to the glory of the Lord. It doesn't mean stop those things. Because we know in order to eat, in order to, to, to move forward in our life, we need to earn money. We need to work. We got to do those things. The Bible says those who don't work ought not eat, right? But there is a sense that we do those things to the glory, to the worship of Christ. And those are two different motivations. Did you know you can do the same thing for different motivations, right? God desires a heart full of people that say that my money, my time, my service, my interests, my work, and my hobbies are all belonging to the Lord because he is of surpassing value and worth. And that's where he gets to Mark 8, 34 through 38. And here's where I want to leave us today with the words of Jesus. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And you got to imagine that Peter's listening to this sermon going, oh my, Jesus just called me out because I wanted Jesus to serve my needs and not for him to be the Lord of my life. See, lordship happens when you join the crew on the rescue mission of existence and give your life totally to the work of the ship captain that saved you. I just want to finish because I've heard these sermons before. I want to set up a fence here. What I'm not asking you all to do is go to international missions. I'm not asking you to quit your job today 
and to go across seas. What I am asking you to do is when you walk into your place of work, whether it's Walmart, whether it's a doctor, that you walk in there with the mindset, this is my missions field because I am a part of the rescue mission of Jesus. He saved me and he's worth everything, every moment, every conversation, every relationship. He is worth those costs. So what? Would you consider these questions, these three questions that Jesus gave us this morning? And how do you ascribe value to Jesus? We call that worth-ship, worth-ship. And what would others say is most important to you? Parents, ask your kids this question. It's kind of scary. And then ask them why they think. Ask your coworkers, what would you say is most important to you? Ask your family members, what would you say is most important to you? I sometimes hesitate to ask that because I don't want the true answer. Anybody there? Like, oh man, I'm a little afraid of what I'm going to hear from that. Guys, let's go to work on our hearts and give them over to the lordship of the Messiah because there is no better place for us than allowing Jesus to be the Lord of our life.